The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, man, how's it going, bud? It is going swimmingly. Maybe that's the incorrect term, but it's going. How about that? Okay. I mean, swimmingly, I guess that works, too. I mean, whatever works for you. It's cool. <laughs> it's hot. It's- that's why. Lots of, lots of baby pool action at our house. It is. Swimming. It is hot here as well. So I, I completely understand. Yeah. Of course, you know, here we get the uh, 120% humidity along with the 90 degree heat. So. Oh, yeah. No, up here, honestly, it's a little better on the humidity, but I do v- very vividly remember the Midwest Kansas heat wave where it literally slaps you in the face when you walk outside. So, yeah. It's good time. Not missing that. You are too. Shut up. You know you are. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I love sweating and sticking to everything. Like one of those things you throw against the wall when you were a kid. Like that's yeah, how you yeah, feel the... everywhere you move. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So it's good times. But... <laughs> Super fun to stick to everything. Like driving a car with leather seats. Oh, miss that. So, <laughs> well, Tom, since the last time we recorded, I think I, I've officially become a camper now. My wife and I bought a travel trailer, and so we've been taking the kids out camping. So that's been a, a fun experience. But I'll tell you, the nice thing about the travel trailer is air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to going out and going to a lake or a campsite, but I guess I'm wimpy enough that I would be like, wait a second, there's not a TV or air conditioning available? Mm-mm, I cannot go to this. I have both. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the last time, and I won't go into it on the air because it's a lengthy story, but uh, camping and raccoons invaded the campsite and a person's ankle got smashed with a flashlight. It was pandemonium. So I don't really go camping if I have to sleep on the ground anymore. Like that just doesn't happen. So. All right, then. Well, Tom. You know, we frequently tell people, hey, you know, if you want to uh, be on the show, reach out to us and let us know. And so that's what our guest tonight actually did. Poor sucker. (laughs) She says she knows what she's in for. We'll see. We will see. We want to welcome Laurel to the show. Laurel, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me, Ben and Tom. 
Oh, sounded nice, Ben and Tom. So <laughs> it's a good ring to it. Yeah, exactly. I like it. I like it too because it's top billing for me. So <laughs> of course. So, Miss <laughs> Laurel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be on the podcast? Sure. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Kansas City area, specifically a suburb, Overland Park, is where my practice is. I was raised mostly in the Kansas City area and went away for college. I did my undergraduate in Decorah, Iowa at Luther College. So shout out to anyone who went to Luther. It's a small liberal arts college and had a a fantastic nursing program. Then came back to Kansas City and worked at the pediatric hospital here for a number of years while I went on to get my master's through KU. And while I was in the family nurse practitioner program at University of Kansas, literally kind of stumbled onto the specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation and just really fell in love with it and identified with it. So that's the area that I've worked in for almost a decade now as a nurse practitioner. And physical medicine and rehab kind of bridges between neurology and non-surgical orthopedics. And so just kind of organically developed a niche of working with patients who have migraine and chronic headache. So I see a big variety of types of patients, but something that I I really came to enjoy working with with was patients who have migraine. So when I decided to go on pursue my doctorate, which I finished a year ago, one of the reasons I went to do that program was I I wanted to kind of do a deeper dive in how I could help patients learn how to self-manage their migraine and knew that would be the focus of my project. So kind of fast forward to 2019 when I was finishing up that project, I wanted to disseminate what I learned and how I can help people self-manage migraine and help nurse practitioners share these ideas and resources with their patients. So going on podcasts and and kind of looking to social media to share that information is uh, kind of a creative way to do that. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast is we want to be informative and we want to do something that people enjoy listening to. So we're really happy you're on the show. And I want to really deep dive into the basics of it so we can teach people that maybe don't completely understand what's the difference between headache, migraine, chronic migraine, etc. Because we do have several listeners that are non-healthcare. So I think that would be good for everybody. But the most important question I have before we get into any of this, since you're from the Kansas City area, best barbecue. Oh, well, I have to go with Casey Joe's, formerly known as Oklahoma Joe's, because we had that for a rehearsal dinner in 2007 and so always holds a special place in my heart. Uh, that, by the way, is the correct answer. So we can continue yes. this. All right, and, good. Yeah. Okay, so, yes, I will set this investigation. This interview can now commence <laughs> now that we... Um, I ate the Z-Man at Oklahoma Joe's in the gas station. Oh, yeah. And I, I, remember, I remember looking at my brother-in-law and just thinking like, okay, is this hype? You know, because everyone talks right. about all the stuff. And the first bite, I literally put the sandwich down. I was like, no. This is legit. This is the best sandwich <laughs> in the world. So, hey, Kansas City Joe's, you got a lot of fans out there. Just wanted everybody to, to hear. If you're in Kansas City, definitely give that place a, a look. It's amazing. Absolutely. It, is, it is really, really good food. Yes, I was going to say, I also had the uh, burnt ends. Oh, I, I literally think I heard harps from angels when I was eating them. It was 
fantastic. But since we got my uh, fat reminiscing out of the way there, let's <laughs> let's break this down a little deeper. So can you give us a little more in-depth understanding of what is a headache? What is a migraine? What's chronic? Kind of just lay the table for us. Sure. So maybe it would be good to use an example of, of a patient who comes in and makes an appointment. They'll often come in and start telling me about all the different types of headaches they have. And they'll tell me that sometimes they have migraines and sometimes they have tension headaches and sometimes they have sinus headaches. And the way I try to kind of sort through it with the patient is I'll ask them when they have a headache, what other symptoms do they have? Are they sensitive to light? Are they sensitive to sound? Do they feel like they want to go lie in a dark room? Because often they're being very stoic and they might initially only tell me about their worst headaches, the ones that they have to go home from work or they have to miss their kid's soccer game. And so I have to phrase questions in a way that really helps me understand their experience with their migraine. So I might have to say, okay, I know you're not leaving work because you're pushing through it, but if you had your preference when you have these headaches, would you go lay in a dark room? And they'll often say, well, absolutely. You know, I don't want any sound. I just want quiet, cold, dark. I don't want any sort of, you know, I don't want to smell anything. They're just, their whole nervous system is very sensitive when they're having these migraine attacks. And that's really, if you want a basic difference between a headache and a migraine is when someone has a migraine, they have other associated symptoms aside from just the head pain. And someone who has migraines, their headaches don't have to feel the same every time. So I try to help patients understand that and say, you have a diagnosis of migraine and that's your overall condition, but it is going to feel different on different days. And I want to understand all the types of headaches that you have. And so an easier way as a provider is to flip the question around. And if I'm interviewing one of you, I might say, Tom or Ben, how many days per month are you crystal clear from the neck up? How many days are you headache free? And if someone is having chronic migraine where they're having more than 15 days a month of symptoms, it'll be much easier for them to, to tell me off the bat, well, I only have five days a month where I feel crystal clear. The rest of the time, I'm either feeling kind of hungover from the migraine I just had, or I feel one coming on, or I have all this neck tightness. And so that's how we get to chronic migraine, which the textbook definition is more than 15 days per month with headache. But sometimes it's not so black and white. A patient isn't going to come in. It's like asthma, right? They're not going to come in and say, oh, I'm having exactly 12 attacks a month. So you have to really get them to track those symptoms and work with them to figure out where they're on on, on that spectrum. Laurel, you mentioned, you know, crystal clear. Words are hard. So Laurel, you mentioned crystal clear from the neck up. And I was just thinking for Tom, that's probably going to be about 0.5 days. Uh <laughs> I woke up like that one time. <laughs> And it confused you. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> so that's what I do. Well, before we deep dive even more into it, I want to make sure that we get all our social media stuff out there, Tom. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast or websites, www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Laurel, I know that you have a website also, and we're going to get more into that shortly. But what is that website real quick? It is Your Migraine Toolkit. Dot com. And Tom, what else can they do to help out the show? 
Well, since I skipped over it at the beginning of the show because I couldn't see my visual cues from Ben, what they can do is they can go to the Just Some Podcast website. Just about at the bottom, there's a little link to Amazon. So click on that before you do any of your Amazon shopping. It tags us in there, and then a small portion of the proceeds goes back to the show, and we really appreciate it. All right. See? <laughs> Let's get into our story that you may have missed, Tom. See, you got a, you're all flustered. I don't know what your deal is today. <laughs> well, I was all excited. I wanted to hear about why I was having headaches. I'm joking. I don't have headaches. But. I think the listeners know why you have headaches. But <laughs> <laughs> So the story that you may have missed, Tom, COVID-19 is not going anywhere, obviously. It continues to uh, you know take over a lot of the news and... So I found an article that I wanted to kind of cover briefly, and this is five persistent myths about coronavirus and why they are untrue. Because I think that we like to try to give true up-to-date information, right, Tom? Well, yeah, generally. <laughs> I mean, and so, so I'm just going to go over these five myths real quick, and then we can get back into migraines and headaches. So myth one, vitamin D prevents the infection. This is a myth, obviously, in a rapid review of the evidence published on May 1, 2020, researchers from the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford in the UK unequivocally conclude that we found no clinical evidence on vitamin D in the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. Second myth is that zinc stops the virus in its tracks. A a team of researchers from Russia, Germany, and Greece, they initially hypothesized that zinc might be able to act as a preventative an adjunct uh, therapeutic for COVID-19. However, they point out there's lack of any actual clinical evidence that zinc might have an effect on COVID-19 in humans. Myth three, vitamin C can help fight SARS. I'm noticing a pattern here. Are are you? (laughs) Yeah. Say that, you know, it's true that uh, vitamin C can help support the immune function. And regarding its effectiveness in treating or preventing colds or influenza, it's limited in uh, contradictory. Um, And so there are some ongoing clinical trials in China where it's looking at the effects of high-dose IV vitamin C on hospitalized patients uh, for COVID-19. And that trial is expected to conclude in September. But the biggest takeaway from this is that IV vitamin C is not the same thing as taking vitamin C supplements as you're not going to get the blood levels as high as you would with an IV infusion. So just downing a whole bunch of vitamin C is not going to be beneficial. You're going to pee out a lot of vitamin C is what you're going to do. Pretty much, yes. Basically orange juice. (laughs) (laughs) Myth four, (laughs) the keto diet can cure COVID-19. So this was because there was some evidence to suggest that keto diets could help boost the immune system. Those studies are actually based on animal studies, not human trials. Uh, So there is no current evidence to suggest that following a keto diet can help a healthy person prevent or treat COVID-19. And then last but not least, herbal remedies can help. Uh, so this is partially based on a statement issued by a Chinese official in April, uh, suggesting that there were certain herbal drugs that could help treat COVID-19. They basically come out and have said that herbal remedies, including drugs that they named, can have unexpected risk and may not be as effective. And there's obviously some uh, lack of evidence for human trials. So... <sighs> Shocker. People are grasping at straws to try and cure something that they don't completely understand. I'm I'm not really surprised at this point that it's going on. However, I think it's important for people like a lot of people are vitamin D deficient. I'm not opposed to people taking vitamin D. Right. I just don't want them to take it in the hopes of preventing or curing 
COVID-19 because I guess I wish it was as simple to tell people that if all it took was eating a couple oranges to cure this, I'm pretty sure at some point somebody would have figured this out and uh, it wouldn't be a pandemic. Hell, the government would have like, you know, made oranges mandatory. Like everybody come get your daily orange allowance and you'd had to have eaten them in front of the health department or some shit. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's not as easy as everybody's wanting it to be. The irony of that is there are still people that'd be like, you can't make me eat this orange. I'm like, that's, that's what you wanted <laughs> was oranges. So sad, sad, but true. Yes. And then they would have some conspiracy theories about how there's microchips in the oranges. And yeah, <laughs> What what do you think, Laurel? Does any of this uh, seem like it's legit to you? Well, that's not surprising to me. It seems like anytime there's a an illness that we're trying to figure out, you'll start to see different things about vitamins being used and, and herbal supplements. But obviously, we need we need research and time to see if any of it's actually true. Research and time. What is this heresy? And <laughs> <laughs> let's not forget all the uh, people on Facebook that are selling vitamins and minerals and things of that nature is a potential cure. So yeah. Right. Right. Got to make a buck, I guess. If, if only it was that easy that we could all take high doses of vitamin D, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if you're vitamin D deficient, take vitamin D, but good Lord, don't, don't substitute that for washing your hands and keeping social distance. You know, like right. good Lord. So here's a, here's a segue though. Do any of these play a part in prevention or development of headaches. Ooh, look at that. That's a, that's a great segue. It's almost like I did this before. Bam. Right. <laughs> there, there are actually some supplements and vitamins that have been studied in migraine. And the one that seems to have the most evidence is magnesium. So I am, because it's really safe, even in pregnancy, I recommend it to most of the patients that I work with. And certainly as a disclaimer, if you're someone who has migraine, definitely check with your medical provider before you start anything. But magnesium is a safe over-the-counter supplement. And I'll have patients take 200 to 500 milligrams in the evening. And as you are both probably aware, it also can help with sleep and anxiety. And there's a lot of overlap between people who have migraine and depression or anxiety. So it can kind of help with a few things. And I have them do either citrate or glycinate form of magnesium because it's absorbed a little better. So, so you heard it here first. Magnesium cures migraines, right? That's well, like well that, that may be a little, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> There, there have also been some studies with riboflavin and butterbur used to be one that was looked at more, but then there are some, some studies that came out that said, depending where it comes from, there can be some toxicity associated with it. So that's really out of all the guidelines and clinical pathways now, but you do see uh, magnesium and riboflavin still. Interesting. Yeah. Getting back into our main topic, since I kind of made us jump around a little bit. Railroaded us. Well, I had to. Otherwise, you're going to keep going, Tom. <laughs> so when you talked about headaches versus migraines, is there anything as far as if a medication, say like Tylenol or et cetera, migraine or, or any of those, if it's not helping the headache, is that more indicative of a migraine? I mean, I'm asking more for like our non-medical listeners. It can be. If someone has more infrequent symptoms, so let's just kind of say episodic if someone has a migraine maybe three times a year and they feel totally perfectly normal 
between all those times and three times a year they get a bad headache and they're you know sick to their stomach and they feel like they want to go lay in a dark room they may be able to treat that with over the counter medication it's possible but often it's not going to respond fully to an over the counter medication and what we see is it's a slippery slope if you're starting to take over the counter medication especially anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or Aleve, and then especially things like Excedrin that have caffeine in them, they help initially. And then as you're taking it more often, you can develop a rebound effect. Kind of like when you get a caffeine withdrawal headache, you know, it's noon and you haven't had coffee for some reason, you start getting a headache. The same thing will happen with over-the-counter pain relievers for people who get a lot of headaches or migraines. So that's where we kind of have to circle in and say, hey, let's get you on either a daily medicine or a more migraine specific medication that's more effective. So you're not having to take all this over the counter stuff. Interesting. And do you have a preference for someone that says, no, I, I just want to take something over the counter? Is there anything over the counter that you feel works best or your patients have had a really good history of at least minimizing symptoms with? My personal preference for over-the-counter is naproxen, which is generic for Aleve, would be a brand that a lot of people know. And the gel caps can be better absorbed. They're just more rapidly absorbed than like a tablet form. So that would be something to look for. And a lot of people will kind of experiment on their own and figure out if they take the ibuprofen or naproxen, that generic Aleve, and they drink a cup of coffee or have a Coke with it, that caffeine can be helpful. It's kind of a double-edged sword. It can be helpful in times of having a headache or migraine, but again, you have to be careful of how much you're using it because if you're intaking too much caffeine, it'll give you more headaches. So you will find patients that kind of figure out a little cocktail over the counter of an anti-inflammatory, some caffeine, and even Benadryl, which is a over-the-counter medication, taking that with an anti-inflammatory and and I think both of you have worked in the ER. That's actually something that ERs and urgent cares use as well as giving Benadryl. Yeah, I'm sure Ben has a very similar headache cocktail that we give here, which includes Benadryl. So mm-hmm. we always take the precaution, obviously, is, you know, do they have a driver? Right. Um, we, we take right. a couple of those things first. But if they don't, then I'm like, well, we can give you, you know, the Toradol or something, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to give you the sedative effect of Benadryl hits some people harder than others. And it it seems to work well. I mean, Ben, have you seen any issues with that? No, my kind of go-to cocktail when I'm working uh, or walking clinic or if I have patients who come in with migraines is Toradol, Finnegan, and Benadryl. Uh, All I am. And yeah, just hit them and tell them, okay, now you're going to go and go to bed. Sometimes that sleep cycle will kind of help break their migraine. So. Absolutely. And you especially see that in the pediatric and adolescent patients. They may have real intense onset of their symptoms, but if they can sleep for 30 to 60 minutes, it'll often just kind of reset them. And when you're asking about, you know, which over-the-counter medicine to take, this kind of leads me into thinking about having patients track their symptoms with even the simplest chart. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It doesn't have to be an app even. I have them color code how they feel. So if they're feeling good, they don't have to write anything down. But if they have any sort of headache, we say green, yellow, red for green being mild, yellow being medium and red being like, I have to stop. I have to go home, whatever their worst is. And so they'll color code it and then they can check mark if they have any other symptoms like I was nauseous or dizzy or sensitive to light or sound. And then they can write down what medication they took and they can use it to track 
their behaviors. Like, did I try to go to sleep at a decent time? Did I try to limit my caffeine? And we track that over a number of weeks and it helps them figure out depending on what type of headache it feels like to them, what type of medicine is most effective for a rescue medication or what other non-medication things they can do. Often patients, if they catch it early and they can get somewhere quiet, even if they're at work, if they can get somewhere quiet for 10, 15 minutes, drink some water, do some breathing techniques, it can be quite helpful for for bringing down the severity of the headache. So now that we've discussed some of that, I guess one of the first things I try and teach my patients, especially with, you know, an ongoing condition is how can we prevent the actual condition from happening. So in this case, what does a usual treatment regimen include for trying to prevent these migraines? Absolutely. And that's exactly the the analogy I use with patients too, is this is a chronic condition. You know, in a best case scenario, it would go away at some point. But for most people who have migraine, this is something that we need to manage. And we're going to work together, shared partnership of managing this condition. And that's where I get the toolkit. And that's where the toolkit for my website comes in is we need rescue strategies, but those are just a rescue. I don't want that to be your main tool in your toolkit. We need preventive strategies. We need behavioral lifestyle things. And the toolkit may change over time because it's a spectrum. You may, you know, two years ago, you were only having one migraine a month and now you're having three a week and we'll never maybe figure out all the factors that got you there. But the whole goal is, can we get you back down to the other side of the spectrum where you're having less severity and less frequency? So some of the preventive things, if we do want to talk about kind of behavioral stuff first, and then we can maybe talk about some medications too. Sure. So when it comes to behavioral, kind of my tagline with patients is we want to control what we can control. We know that people who have migraine, they just kind of have a more sensitive system, right? So even if it's a day where they're feeling pretty good, the bright sunshine may seem brighter to them or a loud movie may sound louder. They just, that's how they're wired. It's nothing that they've done to cause it. And so when I say control what you can control, I mean your sleep schedule, getting plenty of water, trying not to skip meals, you know, figure out what your body needs. You'll hear the term, from headache specialists sometimes of a, a migraine brain craves a routine or craves consistency. And unfortunately, that can be frustrating, especially for someone who's in college. You know, I'm asking them to not pull an all-nighter and not party as much as their friends. It's because just like any chronic condition, the better we can manage it when someone is younger and keep it under control, the less likely that it is to get way out of whack. There's sometimes it's overwhelming to people how much information is online, which is why I wanted to kind of condense and develop a website that was, you know, here's the things that I'm always grabbing a little post-it note and scribbling down for patients. Can I put that all in one place? So these are trusted resources that you can use to help you find those, what we call, you know, lifestyle or self-management techniques. So let's say we have a good understanding of the patient's pattern, what things have been triggering it, or we think we might have some triggering, but we're still having some issues on an ongoing basis. So Mm -hmm. let's move from preventative. We've gone through that. What does it look like to actually start with not only just an examination, like Mm -hmm. the things I know you've talked about the questions you ask, but like, Mm -hmm. is there anything specific like on the physical exam you're looking for? And then what is our starting point for practitioners that aren't migraine specialists 
like what would be your suggestion of this is the route to take? So it is, I'm glad you asked about exam because physical exam is sensitive for abnormal neurologic findings, right? So you want to do a really good neuro exam. If their strength is good, their reflexes, sensation, I'm pretty confident they don't have some sort of brain mass or some something serious going on. However, an easy thing to look up for someone who's in primary care or non-specialty is SNOOP, S-N-O-O-P, the SNOOP criteria. And those are kind of your red flags for migraine. And I would just keep those on a note card somewhere handy. You can find it online for free. So that if you have a headache suffer, make sure you're just going through those checklists. And it's things like, are they having a sudden onset of headache after age 50? Is this a huge change from their normal pattern of headache? Are they having some sort of positional where it's only when they lay down or it's only when they sit up? So those are the the snoop criteria and that's not all of them. But if someone has one of those more worrisome signs or on your neurologic exam, you're finding, hey, their reflexes are not symmetric or they're overly brisk or they're having weird numbness and tingling, things like that, then that's when you would get an MRI or do some other diagnostic workup. The vast majority of these patients can be managed in a primary care setting or don't necessarily need to have a neurologist long-term, but you might feel comfortable doing a one-time neurology consultation and making sure you're not missing anything. Using those red flag criteria, I always ask patients if they've had a good eye exam. I just, I'll admit I'm not great with my eye exams. I can do the basic, but I always recommend that they have a more thorough exam with an ophthalmologist or an optometrist. So those are kind of the things that I look for with my patients because certainly step one is let's make sure it's not what we call a secondary headache. That is a headache that's coming from a more serious issue. Ben, I would just like to point out, she keeps saying when I ask a question that it's a great question. I just... I just want to throw that out there that you have to deal with the fact that Laurel keeps saying, I'm asking a great question. Well, even the blind talk gets an acorn every once in a while, Tom. So (laughs) apparently you're just on it today. Apparently. Well, and I'm glad Miss Laurel brought up a few of those facts because as a newer nurse practitioner, when I'm seeing a patient and especially with someone with a history of migraines or headaches and we're talking, those were some of the things I was just naturally looking for. Like, I understand what you're saying that not every headache is going to be the same, but if it is suddenly different, that tends to be a red flag for me that, hey, perhaps this is no longer just a migraine or this particular case is not a migraine. Is there, any, yeah. is, is there anything, Ben, that you look for? Like that's a red flag? Because for me, it's like, obviously the ER training kicks in. Like if they come in and they say, this is the worst thing I've ever had, automatically my hair goes up. Like, oh, wait a second. You know, this this might be a little worse. Yeah, and I mean, and that's kind of where like, because I do have chronic migraine patients. And so if they do come in in an acute migraine, that's kind of my go-to is like, okay, does this feel somewhat similar to previous migraines that you've had? Because that does kind of alleviate some of that concern for you. I think it's interesting because generally speaking, I think uh, when I have like a patient with new onset of migraines or a new patient come in with migraines, I mean, generally an MRI is part of my diagnostic workup and, and maybe that's not always needed so that's kind of interesting interesting tidbit that i picked up tonight yeah yeah so so actually that was going to be one of the the other questions i'm sure it's going to be a great question for miss laurel and (laughs) 
it's actually it's actually a two-parter which is a when should we be ordering a diagnostic imaging and b is there a reason or a time when you would choose like a ct versus an mri mm-hmm. okay it was a great question, but I, I'm not going to yes. focus on that because <laughs> we don't want to make Ben feel okay. bad. <laughs> don't, don't let me down, Laurel. Just keep it up. Keep it up, Laurel. Okay. So I'll try to remember both parts of that. Um, the first part, certainly if they have abnormal findings on physical exam, I'm going to be thinking about an MRI more than I would if they have a normal physical exam. Number two, age of onset. If it's a teenager that just out of the blue is starting to have migraine. Now this can be hard, right? Because that's also a time where we start to see headaches is in our our young and teenage population. But I just have a little bit lower threshold with those patients. I really don't want to be missing something, to be honest. So I do have a a pretty low threshold for getting an MRI in in a younger patient. Um, And then the other end of the spectrum, if it's someone who is age 50 and older, who has no history of headache or migraine, and all of a sudden is having it, I'm definitely going to get one on that type of patient or if it's a change. So just to give an actual example, there's a patient that I work with who'd had migraines throughout her life, but not very often. They were pretty predictable. She could usually treat them. And then she got to a point where she just couldn't treat them and they were more often and more severe. And she ended up having a meningioma, which is a benign brain tumor. So it was not cancer, but it was a mass in her brain and it was making the headaches worse. So that's just a good example of if it's a change from their normal pattern, you don't want to ignore that. If it is positional, so it only happens or it's much worse when they lay down, much worse when they sit up, that's something I'm going to be looking at at imaging for. And then the type of imaging, CT is is usually not the go-to unless you've had trauma, which with your ER, you probably are using CT more often because CT is good at seeing bone and blood. So if they've had a recent concussion or I'm worried about a bleed, maybe it's an older patient that I'm worried about bleeding in the brain, CT. But most of the time when they're coming in, it's going to be kind of a history of it's, it's been going on for a little while. And MRI is going to be more sensitive for seeing a mass or just other tissue changes than you can see on a CT scan. Great question, Tom. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> I appreciate when you, you acknowledge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I do, I, I think it is good to be talking through, most of the time, folks with migraine are going to have a well-documented history of it's been going on throughout their life. There's often a family history. And most of the time, imaging is going to come back normal. But we don't want to miss the times that it's not just a headache, quote. But we don't want to be over-ordering tests. So it can be kind of a balancing act. Right. That makes sense. And that's one of the facets that's still hard for me to grasp sometimes is that, okay, so they've had headaches before and this has become more consistent, but it's not really more severe. However, obviously something has changed. Mm -hmm. So now it's become, I don't want to miss something, Mm -hmm. but I also don't want this patient paying for testing that may or may not be necessary. And that's why I was is there a parameter, you know, that's what I was going for. Is there sure. that, that trigger point where we go, okay, this is now what we need to do. I'll give you another example of there's a patient that I've been working with for maybe about two years now. And when she first came in, she's in her twenties. She was just feeling completely overwhelmed by her headaches. I mean, having symptoms almost every day, 
but a well-documented history of headache and migraine throughout her life. Stress is a big trigger for her as it is for a lot of people. She didn't have any abnormal findings on her exam. And I felt comfortable just starting to treat her with preventive medication combined with acute medication and, and kind of monitoring her. And she seemed to be doing better and she had a baby. And then after the baby, the headaches have gotten worse again, which could be hormonal, but she wasn't responding as well as she was before she had the baby. And so that's another thing you want to keep in mind. If someone is not responding to treatment the way you expect, that's another time to kind of take a step back and say, okay, let's just cover the bases. And so she is someone that I I went back and got an MRI on, even though I'd been working with her for a while. And in the beginning, I didn't feel like it was needed. Came back normal, fortunately, but I felt better. She felt better. We reassured you know both of us that she didn't have something going on. So you mentioned kind of treatment there. And I know earlier we kind of talked a little bit about some behavioral modifications, but so what are some of your kind of your go-to prophylactic therapy for migraines and some of your abortive therapy for migraines? So this area has kind of, I don't want to say exploded, but it's gotten, our toolkit's gotten bigger in the past couple of years, which is, is exciting as healthcare providers, but it can be a little overwhelming too, right? Especially if you have a patient that comes in and says, Hey, I've seen five different commercials in the last month for these new medications. Which one do you think I should take? And then you get into the whole thing of, okay, well, what's your insurance going to cover and what's safe for you to be on? So if we just start with what's been around the longest is medicines that weren't developed for migraine. They were medicines that were developed for other things. And we found that they happened to treat migraine because even though it's been a couple decades now that what we would call, you know, bench researchers, the scientists at the basic science level, they've known some of the nerve chemicals that causes migraine. One of them is CGRP, which is a a neuropeptide type of neurotransmitter. But it takes years and years to develop medications that would specifically target that chemical in the brain. And so in the meantime, we have three main categories of medicines that are used. We have anti-seizure medicines that kind of happen to help with headache and migraine. We have blood pressure medications, usually beta blockers, but sometimes a few other ones. And then also antidepressants that seem to help with migraine for some people. So a lot of it is really kind of getting to know the patient and saying of these three categories, which one is going to be the best for you, hopefully provide the least side effects and help decrease the severity and frequency of your migraine. So just as an example of how I work with patients in clinic, if they're having more than a couple of headache days per week, or the headache days are really severe, that's when I'm going to look at a daily medicine or a preventive medication versus, quote, just a rescue medication. Not everybody needs a preventive medication, but I would argue if they're coming in to see you, whether you're a primary care provider or a specialty provider, it's a problem. Most patients who just get occasional headaches or what we would call tension headaches that work over-the-counter medications, they're not going to take the time to make a medical appointment and come in and say, my headaches are a problem. So that's where it circles back to really get a good history, really see how these are impacting the patient's life. And most of the time, they are going to benefit from some sort of preventive therapy. And if it's someone who also has trouble with sleep, amitriptyline or nortriptyline are kind of my go-to's an antidepressant technically, but in low doses, it works well for headache and migraine. They take it in the evening. And if it causes a little drowsiness, okay, helps them sleep. 
So that's an example. If it's someone who has a little bit of high blood pressure, a beta blocker might be a good option because then we're treating both the blood pressure and the headaches. At the same way, beta blockers can be used for anxiety for some people. So if they have anxiety plus headaches, maybe that's kind of two for one. The anti-seizure medications are used often, but I have to admit they're not my favorite because they have a lot of side effects. So things like Topamax, uh, Topiramate is the generic. You may have heard the nickname Dopamax because it just makes them feel foggy at the higher doses. So you'll see that used by neurologists and headache specialists a lot. But personally, I don't start people on that one a whole lot myself. So propranolol, is that like one of the ones that you would probably Mm -hmm. go with? Like, okay, for beta As a beta blocker. I would say kind of my top ones that I use as far as the oral medications are amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, and propranolol. If you look up online dose ranges for headache and migraine, they're kind of all over the place. And I'm a low and slow person. So like on amitriptyline, I'll start them on 25 milligrams, sometimes even 10 if there's someone who thinks they're going to be real sensitive to it. And then propranolol, I'll start that at 10 and then go up from there. Though I think it's good to bridge into some of the newer options because especially for the providers and even for, for people listening who have headache and migraine, there, there are some new medication options out there. So I'm just curious if either of you are familiar with Botox being used for migraine or if, if you've had patients that have received it. Personally, yes. I, we have a PM&R clinic in our facility, um, and so they do a lot of Botox for migraines. Yeah. So, And that one, I guess I wouldn't lump that in the brand new category because it's actually been FDA approved for a decade for migraine, but I think there's still kind of under-awareness of the benefits of it. It's FDA approved for chronic migraine. So that's where it's really important to tease out how many days are you really having headache? Doesn't mean you're laying in a dark room all the time, but you know, if you're having headache more than 15 days a month, and especially if you have a lot of neck tightness, which at least 70% of people have neck pain and neck tightness with their migraine. Botox, the protocol for using it for migraine, it's injected around the head and the back of the neck and the upper trapezius area. And it's done every 12 weeks. So about every three months. Usually insurance is going to require that you have failed a couple of daily oral medications before you would qualify for Botox. Other than Botox, because I noticed you said oral medication. Mm-hmm. So I know there are several injectable medications. What are some of the other ones? And w- do you have a specific indication of use or is it just they have failed oral? And that's where, when I mentioned CGRP, that's where these new medications fit. So they're called CGRP antagonist, which means they work on blocking CGRP. And the three main brands are Amovig, Emgality and Ajovi. They all came out within about a year of each other, even less than that, actually. Amovig came out first and then Emgality and Ajovi. They all work on blocking CGRP, but the mechanism is a little different. So not to get into the weeds, but it's like, are you, you know, if we use a soccer analogy, are you trying to block the goal or the soccer ball? So they just work a little differently, but they have the same effect overall. And so we we haven't been using them long enough to really say, one is way better than the other. We don't have head-to-head studies. But personally, I think they all can work for patients. I would say from just, and this is my personal, what I've seen, the labeling on Amovig had to be updated because there were some case reports of severe constipation. And I have seen that as a side effect in some folks. So now I ask 
them ahead of time. Do you have any history of constipation? If they do, I might not use that one, but I've seen multiple patients do really well on it. I had just a patient last week that I saw who she had tried everything. And we have many patients who do well on Botox. She was just one that had not even responded to that. And once she got on Amovig, she hasn't had to give herself prescription rescue medicine in months. And this is someone who had to miss an anniversary trip. She you know, is missing work all the time. She was very debilitated. So that's what we maybe call a super responder, someone who just does really well with that medication. But similar with the Mgality and the Ajovi, they're all given once a month. Ajovi actually has an option that you can do quarterly. So that's kind of cool. But they seem to be very clean, quote, clean medications without a lot of side effects. Aside from, I would pay attention to the labeling on Amovig because that one's been updated. But it's the first time that I can say to a patient, this is a medication that was developed from start to finish for migraine. So it, it's kind of exciting. And see, I have several patients who like have used Amovig and it's worked well uh-huh. for them. But the provider side of my brain goes, man, what worries me is if I give this medication and it's meant to be given monthly, if they have a side effect or a problem for it, it's going to be a long, long month for them dealing with side effects. That's true. That's true. And I will say, you know, just to be fair, I have some of these patients that have done super well on Amovig. And then I have a couple that have had the constipation issue and it's taken more than a month for that to go away because they have very long half-life. So I haven't seen that side effect with Mgality or Ajovi. I haven't really seen any side effects with Mgality or Ajovi. So I would just, if you're a provider, ask the patient if they have a history of constipation. There's also another updated labeling on hypertension and Amovig. So I would, and I haven't done a whole lot of detailed reading on that, but I would just throw that out there, check that as well, maybe for patients who have a history of hypertension. But what that makes me think of when you're asking about that is pregnancy. So that's another question that comes up. These medications have not been studied at all in pregnancy. And so because they have such a long half-life, if you have someone who's thinking about getting pregnant, you would want them off it for a few months. Or if I have a patient who's thinking about getting pregnant in the next six months, I just wouldn't do that one right now. I would wait until after they have a baby. And even though we don't have formal studies of Botox in pregnancy, we have hundreds and hundreds of case reports of people who didn't know they were pregnant or their migraines got so terrible being off it that they went back on it. And Botox is used for neurogenic bladder in pregnancy if it's severe. So we have a lot of different case reports where nothing bad has happened. So that one... I'm not as concerned about, but these new CGRP antagonists, we just don't have enough data on pregnancy. And that's our a big population of people who have migraine are women of childbearing age. And we know migraine is much more common in women three to one over men. So as a person, I, I am aware that Botox is able to be used. However, I've never had a patient on it or sent for it. So is anybody trained in Botox able to do this? Or is there someone specific, like a neurologist, a general cert? Like, who do I need to be sending to for a consult to get or to have them actually get the Botox injections? A primary care provider could be trained in it, especially if it's in a rural area, maybe somewhere there's not as much access to a specialist. Most of the time, unless you're in a a smaller town, it would be either a neurologist, physical medicine and rehab, 
or a headache specialist. So personally, I do this in in my practice and I just chose to get further training. So there's training programs you can go to on it. You can like go shadow with someone who's doing it, or you can get training through the company that makes the product. And then it's more broad than Botox, but some providers may be interested to know that there's a certification exam you can sit for as a nurse practitioner, a PA, a primary care doctor, even as a dentist. If you're someone who just wants to have more knowledge and training and headache, it's through the National Headache Foundation. And I sat for that certification last fall. And just the act of, of studying for it was fantastic for my just growth as someone who works with headache patients. I'm just saying, I think I'll get real popular if they're like, oh, Tom can do Botox. I'm like, yeah, what do you know? I can, <laughs> I can make that happen. Yeah. It's always funny when, because we do medical Botox for a lot of neurologic conditions in our office. And if we have a male patient and their significant as other is there going, oh, do you think you might have any extra of that you need to just get yeah. rid of? <laughs> That's always the big joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to just wrap up on that, it's definitely patients will, will joke to me too, that I can't believe anyone pays so much money for this because when you're someone who has migraine getting multiple, even though they're tiny little needles around your head, it's still not the most pleasant thing for them. So they look forward to it because it helps their headaches, not for the cosmetic. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to touch briefly because we're kind of getting near the end. Abortive therapy. I mean, triptans are the big one, whether it's Imitrex or, or any of those. And then I know that there's a newer one that had just come out recently as well. Uh, do you have much? And it's like you Revly, I believe. So this is, and just to kind of divide it, which to reiterate what you just said, we have preventive medications and that's kind of one side of your toolkit. And then the other side is what we would call abortive or rescue medications. And that can be over the counter things. It can be what we call the triptans, which those have been around since the nineties and work really well for a lot of folks, but can have side effects. And then also if it's someone who has cardiac history or they're high risk for heart issues, they often cannot take those because they can cause some constriction in the blood vessels. So that leads us into these some of the newer medications you just mentioned, UbrelV or Ubro Japan is the generic. These are called G-Pants is kind of the, the nickname to them. They are also targeting CGRP, but the difference is they have a short half-life and it's given in a pill form. So they're called small molecule where those monthly ones are a large molecule. They have to be given in an injection form because they just wouldn't work if you took it in a pill. And so on the abortive side, we have these G-Pants. Just to throw out there, it is safe if someone is on something like Amovig, Mgality, or Ajovi. It is also safe to take something like UbrelV or UbroJapant. There was also another one that just came out called Nurtec, which works very similarly. It just dissolves under the tongue instead of a pill that you swallow. And so I can't really say that one is better than the other. They're very similar and, and they both came out pretty recently. I'm using these, these medications with patients that either cannot take triptans or the triptans don't work well for them, or they get side effect, which sometimes we call triptan sensation. And I'm curious if you guys have heard patients talk about this, they might call like a a heaviness on their chest or tingly all over, just drowsy when they take a triptan, we call that triptan sensation. And so these new ones, the G pants don't seem to cause those side effects. I, I've heard of the drowsiness. I've not heard of the necessarily the chest heaviness, but I know micro patients that I've had, if they're to the point of taking a trip tan, they know that their day is basically over. I mean, they're going to take it and then they're going to just kind of be wiped out. 
So it's kind of yeah. reassuring to hear that there's potentially other medications that we can use that may not cause quite severe effects. Yeah. The Ubrelvi or Ubrojapant comes in two different doses and the Nurtec comes in, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, one, I think just one, but there may be two doses. I'm pretty sure it's just one. And then I will comment, there's one other new rescue medication that's not a GPAN. It's called Rayvow. It works on a portion of serotonin, but different. it works differently than like antidepressants would. And it's just a rescue. It's not a daily medicine. It works a little more centrally. And so the thing to keep in mind with that is there's a label that says you shouldn't drive for eight hours. That's based on this new testing that drug companies have to go through. So if we retroactively did that, we'd probably have that label on a lot of muscle relaxants and other medicines. So I feel kind of bad that they had to put that label on when we don't have that on a lot of other medicines. But I will plan on telling patients, hey, if you use this one, maybe just use in the evening or you know, make sure you don't have to drive anywhere. And it just works more centrally. So it can cause more drowsiness and dizziness. But it, I think they all have a place. And it's good that we have more options for patients. And the last thing I'd like to say about the rescue medication is treat early. A lot of times patients tell me, well, I'm just going to wait and see how bad it gets. But the best way to remember that is if you wait, it's like a song that gets stuck in your head. And we want to treat early, you know, nip it in the bud and just get rid of that migraine attack. Because if we don't, it's more likely that the medication won't work or it'll linger into a second day. And it's really just the same headache that didn't go away. Well, I live with a person that takes a triptan. So I will be more than happy to reinforce that I have been right this whole time and <laughs> that they should treat early instead of late. And I have a professional backing me up on this since apparently I'm not one. There you go. So oh, thank God. you so much again. That was a great answer, Laurel. So, Jeez. <laughs> Laura, before we wrap up completely and, we, and before we jump into our, our final segment, which of course is five questions, I kind of wanted to just deep dive briefly into the website and kind of what all that's about and what how patients can use it and how providers can use it. Sure. So when someone goes to the website, it's yourmigraintoolkit.com. It's a it's very basic. It's just one page. You don't have to click around. Everything's on one page. At the top is these short animated videos that just kind of walk through what is a migraine? How is it different than, than other headaches? And then there's one on medication overuse, how you can prevent that. There's one on tracking and journaling tips for that. And then one on just kind of a general overview on why it's important to manage your lifestyle or your health behaviors. Then once someone watches those short videos, they can scroll down past the videos and see some just written information about keeping a headache journal or a headache chart. And then underneath that, it's divided by health behavior. So there's a section on sleep. There's a section on relaxation, hydration, and tracking your headaches. And so for each of those sections, it's like buttons basically. So there's an image for each link. And it's the links that I was always scribbling on scrap paper to patients. Like for relaxation, for example, there's this fantastic website, dawnbuse.com. She's a PhD psychologist that specializes in headache and migraine. She has free guided audio relaxations on her website. So I was always telling patients about that. So now that's on the website. So it's, it's a virtual toolkit for what I feel like are just really good resources for patients. And then there's a section for just general like the National Headache Foundation, how do you link to that? Or the American 
Migraine Society. And I try to update it every once in a while with some new information. Well, I was kind of pulling it up while you were talking. It does look very interesting. I'll have to look more into that more in depth. And I would recommend from a provider standpoint, if you have a new headache or migraine patient that's feeling pretty overwhelmed, just giving them these resources, they often feel very empowered. And I have patients that will walk out just kind of looking lighter because we've had a good talk about, hey, we're going to get you feeling more in control. And if you have a clinic where you have like tablets or a computer in the room and and you have the time to let someone stay in the office, I found it helpful to just say, you know what, I'm going to step out for 10, 15 minutes and just let you watch these videos and kind of look around the website a little bit. And then I'll come back in and let's see what what area you feel like you need to focus on. Do we need to talk more about your sleep? Do we need to talk more about your hydration? Because it can easily be a really long clinic visit, but if you have the physical space to just let them be educated and you leave the room, go see someone else and come back, that that may kind of make the visit more efficient and comprehensive. Interesting. Look how trusting Laurel is. I would feel more confident if you gave me your bank account number <laughs> there, Laurel. So let's... let's Let's see how this is going. Like, I'm not letting anybody touch my computer. I don't know what's going to be found on that thing. I don't need an FBI agent showing up at my uh, office sometime later. So so maybe just yeah. have them use their own phone. Everybody has yeah. their own see, phone, right? There you go. Yeah. See, now we're getting somewhere, Laurel. So <laughs> some poor brand new NPs listening to this show. She gives her computer to somebody. Mm. I'm trying to prevent problems, Laurel, not make them. Well, we're old school at my office. We still have like desktops in all the rooms, so they're not going to walk off with that. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> but I, I hope I hope it's helpful, and that was really my goal when when I did that developed. And part of the I don't know if we've talked about this really, but the website development was part of my doctoral work, and I used it with patients, and and they tracked kind of before and after using the tools on the website. So I hope people find it helpful. So while we're talking about that real quick, did you find, uh, obviously, like, what were the results? Did you find patients had a greater outcome with this? Or were there patients that seemed to respond better than others? Yes. So the short answer is yes, it was good outcomes. They had a reduction in their headache severity, the headache frequency. One of the things I really wanted to measure was what we call self-efficacy. So how in control of your condition do you feel? And that number went up. So that was good that it went up. And another outcome that I was pleasantly surprised was that their use of the rescue medication went down. And part of the education was not overusing your rescue medication, which can be kind of a a balancing act. But actually what they told me at the end was it was just physically tracking the symptoms because they had to keep a simple chart every day. That's really what got them in tune with what they needed to do. So I think the website was helpful. The videos were helpful. And I sent them a secure text message once a week as a reminder that would be like, hey, Ben, or hey, Tom, have you have you remembered to drink extra water today? And don't forget to go to yourmigraintoolkit.com for more resources. So they would get that little reminder once a week. But at the end of the day, I think it was really just simply the tracking that made the biggest difference for them. All right. Tom, are you uh, geared up for our final segment? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm ready. Miss Laurel, is there anything else important you think we need to discuss, cover, go over, compliment me again about anything that we need to do before we wrap up this uh, interview? I think we covered. I would just like to say for anyone out there who has migraine, there are wonderful headache specialists. And I would just encourage you to try to find someone in your area, find someone that you can have a good relationship with, because that's 
really a lot of what it is, is just someone that will listen to you and someone you can work with and and find what's going to be best in your toolkit. And if you're a healthcare provider, especially in the primary care setting, these patients are in your practice and, and you can really make a big difference in their, in their life by helping them with their migraines. And go see Tom because he asked great questions. Apparently, yes, yes. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I reserve all my good questions for here, though. I don't, I don't do this in my personal life. I save uh, all the good geez. questions for our guest. So that's how it works. Well, speaking of questions, Tom Laurel says she's a fan of the show, and so she is expecting five questions. So we'll see if she's a. Uh, oh, we're going to find out, or if if the pressure of it is going to get to her. So let me get the music queued up here. Join us on a journey into the inner psyche of our guest as we ask five, 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 five questions. All right, Laurel, you, you said you're ready. Five questions. So question, well, I, I guess. Do you feel ready, Laurel? I think so. It, you know, this is the only part that I was a little nervous for, but I think Oh, you're ready. yeah, you should be. <laughs> I'm shaking a little bit. Here we go. Well, just in case anybody has, you know, this is the first episode that someone has listened to. This is the same five questions that we ask to every single guest. I ask the question, Tom's make fun of your answers. So question one, what is your favorite medical word? So I will again, give a shout out to my alma mater, Luther College. And I have a vivid memory being in anatomy class. And one of the professors talking about anatomy in the head, and she was talking about Dura mater, and she said the way to remember it is it means tough mother. And I just I like that medical term, and I liked how she helped us remember it. It's hard to make fun of because that's exactly how I remember it too. <laughs> I remember someone saying it was tough mother, and I'm like, yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah, yes. yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, well, I can't really make fun of that too much, but I'm going to try harder on the next one. So you get double on one of these next. Ones. <laughs> okay. Question two. If you could do any job in the world other than what you currently do, what would it be? Oh, I know you're going to make fun of me for this one. I would love to be a group fitness instructor. I'm an endurance athlete, and that's how I discovered my joy of exercise was doing group fitness classes. And I did get to try it out during COVID-19 shelter in place because the gym was closed and I didn't want to do weights on my own. So I recruited two neighbors and we've done socially distanced exercise in my driveway Twice a oh, week. God. There we go. <laughs> and it's it's been quite entertaining, I think, for all the neighbors. <laughs> wow. Could could Laura and I be more polar opposites? I'm trying to avoid people and I don't run anywhere. Like a bear could be chasing me. I'm like, not today, bear. So <laughs> I'm not I'm not running anywhere. Do you run like marathons or anything? Or is it just like five Ks for fun? I do enjoy marathons. I did the Kansas City Marathon last year. Are you shitting me? Jeezy, crazy. See, so, oh, you know, you're into fitness and Tom wants to be a competitive eater. So, I mean, it's, uh, you there know. There you go. See, <laughs> it, all, it all works. Yeah. We all have our own out. endurance sports. <laughs> yes. And Ben's is putting up with me. So, it all works out. See, oh my God. Endurance and she just found a way to work out. Good Lord. All right. Oh, you're that man. person. We all know one and it's Laurel now. All right. Question three. Think back to your first car. Was it a stylish ride or a rolling turd? Oh, rolling turd. It was a Toyota Echo. <laughs> and 
I can't even I can't even keep a straight face talking about it. I had no cruise control. So I was driving between Kansas City and Decorah, Iowa, which is you know, like a good seven hour drive with minimal stops with no cruise control. Oh, that's brutal. What what color was it? Uh green. Okay. Oh, God, green. so you were driving a green egg with no? Did it? <laughs> did it even have power windows? I'm betting we had roll down windows. No, roll down windows. You're totally yeah. right. God, jeez. Yeah. Well, did you have to pedal start it when you got into it, or like how did it work? Did it have three cylinders? I, I honestly. I know a person that had an echo and every time I got into it, I'm like, thank God you have a car because otherwise I would not get in the shit box for anything. And now Laurel, uh, but see, she is saying rolling turd, which I congratulations. You are correct. It is. Um, but at the same time, I'm just getting this. Oh, I love to work on marathons and study things. I'm like, I'm surprised she isn't like it was good for the environment, Tom. Like bullshit. Well, you know oh, when we God. know when it's your first car, you have nothing to compare it to. You're just excited to have a car that you can yeah. afford. And I didn't True. have a car payment, um, and I didn't realize how basic it was until I got a different car. <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't realize it was that basic until you literally sat in any other vehicle in America. Like, were you comparing it to like a Yugo in like Serbia? Like, what is your comparison basis for a Toyota Echo? The Subaru station wagon. That was what she was comparing it to. And it was. I would take the Subaru. Like, oh, oh man. I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it has the same tire, like, as a riding lawnmower. Like, this is not a high performance vehicle. We're well, it's, about a, it's a miracle I made it back from a spring break one year in a snowstorm. Really? Oh, yeah, that's a bad combo. <laughs> Inclement weather and a Toyota Echo. Yeah, just uh, d- isn't that the one that has like the dash in the center of the console? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I kind of forgot about that part. It's been a while. Yeah, th- those guys screwed it up so bad they didn't put the dash where the dash goes. So, good lord, man. Yeah, because I wanna—I always want to have to turn my head when I'm checking my speed. So that's a good idea. So, yeah. All right, question four. I think Tom more than made up for question one on, on the third question there. So. Oh, yeah. Question four. Your house is on fire. Everyone, including your pets, are safe. Other than pictures, what's the one thing you want to get out of your house? Oh, other than pictures. Yes, we're taking one. Yeah, we had to modify it. Off because, oh, because, because yeah, everybody, of course, everybody's going to say pictures. Was that what you were going to say, Laurel? It was, of course. <laughs> I, have, I have two small children. Of course, it's my pictures. No, so in my in my bedroom, as we just went through the whole thing about me being an endurance athlete, I have uh, this personalized beautiful wood sign that my dad made me from a tree that fell down in their backyard years ago. And we hung this cool metal rod on it. And I have all my race medals hanging on there. So I I could probably grab that off the wall and run out pretty fast with it. Okay. So you get bonus points because it's something cool your dad made, but the race medals, I was like, Oh, Laurel, Laurel (laughs) race. Oh no. I was actually expecting her to say something like uh, my favorite sweatband for running or something (laughs) like that. Like I ankle weights so I could do more squats (laughs) when I'm running around. I wasn't sure where we were going to my Nike cross trainers. I mean, yeah. Yes. I just got those Brooks running shoes, guys. So, yeah, there you go. And they come up with something a little better than that. No, no. I was like, oh, 
it was all sweet. I was like, oh, her dad it's made it for her. She's yeah, like, yeah. It is. And then she's like, and then I pin my medals of achievement <laughs> over you, fatty, right to it. I'm going to staple it to you and make you run. I'm like, damn, Laurel. You just, you had me. You had me. So, all right. She's going to have to chase me down while I'm eating my Cheetos. So that's how that works. Question five. Laurel, you have $9.18 in your pocket. You're at the convenience store. What all do you buy? At the convenience store. Well, usually I never have to buy chapstick because I just get it from the expos at conferences, but there's no conferences this year. So I probably would stock up on a couple of chapstick and a coffee drink because I love coffee and I love gas station coffee. Like that's how I started to drink coffee was the the like really cheap, sweet cappuccino. And I don't drink it anymore, but it would definitely be a, a guilty pleasure to have one. I am so many things to unpack here for a second. Yes. Hold on. Gas station <laughs> coffee is where you started the coffee trend. I didn't drink coffee until my third year of college and I had a roommate. So I, the first time was not the gas station coffee, but that's what really got me like hooked on it. And I had this roommate that she would buy that powdered cappuccino stuff mm-hmm. and she would make coffee and then mix the powdered cappuccino to make it taste kind of sweet and creamy and it smelled good so I asked her if I could try some and I was so focused on my pathophysiology chapter that day it's like I get it I get why people love this stuff and then I would have to drive from our third year was in Rochester Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic and I would have to drive from there down to campus sometimes in Iowa and so I would stop. It was like a a treat. You stop at the gas station and get this like, you know, 80 cent cappuccino at the the come and go. And then I could drive for 17 hours straight. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We need a catheter, but. (laughs) I really expected her to say something like all natural ostrich jerky and a propel. Like, oh, come on. Yeah. But you blew my mind with eighty cent gas station gas station coffee. I, I was the like chapstick. Don't forget the chapstick. Chapstick's horrible for your lips. Don't don't do that to me, Laurel. Out of all the stuff, come on. But you know what? You got me. You know what? You could have blew my mind if she was like, you know what? I love Slim Jims. I'd be like, damn, Laurel, you got me again. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, if you if you hadn't put the caveat of the convenience store, I probably would have said like, oh, an eight dollar green juice, but. If I'm at Quick Trip, sure, why not? Chapstick and coffee. My goodness. It has a high caffeine content that she can now hear colors. It's great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Hyper-focused. I'm not saying that's a terrible answer. I'm just like, I'm honestly just, I don't think anyone has said that. I like to make sure I have some indigestion when I'm done drinking this. <laughs> so... <laughs> Like, wow, way to go, Laurel. She'll just do a couple extra sit-ups and make sure she works it out. All right, well, that concludes five questions. If you like this episode and you want to be like Laurel and you want to get subjected to mistreatment by Tom, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast, or websites www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Laurel, why don't you drop them there at your website one more time? yourmigraintoolkit.com and on Twitter I'm at Laurel on the run of course you are of course <laughs> so well Tom man on that note it was, it was a good episode I mean lots of stuff about migraines and 
marathon running and chapstick. I mean, it was, you know, what more could you want out of a just some podcast episode? Uh, nothing. No, I, she complimented me several times and, uh, we got a lot of good information. So that's what I'm looking for every episode. Well, if the compliments aren't there, it's because they accidentally got edited out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's just going to be people hearing me go, no, I'm right. And they're going to be like, why is he saying that all the time? I exactly. Well, th- thank you both for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great. And on that note, I hope everybody has a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. No, Miss Laurel, that was. Awesome. swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why I am alone. I caught some road bridge and I thought of you. And all the many times you say I should have known. Took a press so I could find my cheek. Find mediocrity's the best that I could do. Let's a shower, but I slept all day. It takes everything to live the life I choose. Yeah.